Welcome to Adventures of a Blonde Geisha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adventures of a Blonde Geisha. My name is Lisa Wilkerson, and I am the host of this podcast. I have been traveling for the past week or so, and I'm currently in South Carolina, where I'm hanging out with my fabulous Maza, Judith K. Wilkerson. So I decided to have her on my podcast. It's not an interview, though. I told her we would I would not be interviewing. It's a conversation. Hello, Mom. How are you? Well, hi, Lisa. It's good having you here. <laughs> Thank you. It is my podcast, so I would be here no matter what. (laughs) I was born, grew up in West Virginia, in Charleston, West Virginia. Yes. And come from a large family. There were 12 of us, six boys and six girls. And my dad was a preacher. Mm Mm-hmm. But he also had a day job, is that right? Yes, he uh, worked at Monsanto Chemical Company. Uh-huh. And uh, he was a pipe fitter, but that was his main job. But whenever he got a chance to do another job, like where he would have to work outside, he loved that. Oh, really? My mom didn't because it meant a cut in his pay. Uh... <laughs> but anyway... um so I grew up, went to school there, and mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I would help out with teachers at the school that I had. Uh, my school was on the same campus mm-hmm. as an elementary school. Your high school was? Yes. Oh, okay. And and so I would, when I had a a bit of free time, I would go over there and help one of the teachers at the elementary school. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into teaching, which became my job later. Mm -hmm. And uh, the woman who was in charge of the program uh, was my teacher one year, and she encouraged me to apply for a scholarship to go to college. So I ended up being the first one in my family to graduate from college. That's amazing. What number? So 12 kids, which, of course, obviously, I've met them all. Um, You are number seven. Yes. Right. Of the of the kids. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, And and I'm sure that was like a really big accomplishment back then too to get a scholarship and to be able to go to college. Of course, it was much cheaper. Yeah. To go to college back then. It was nothing compared yeah. To what people have to pay now. Yeah. And then what did you study in college? I studied to be a teacher. The fields that I have were French and mm-hmm. social studies. So those are the mm-hmm. subjects I have planned to teach. Yeah. And I did for a few years. And then in 1970, oh, I met my husband there. I should put that at in school there. at college. Yeah, Bruce. And, uh, we got married and moved mm-hmm. around a bit, and then finally in 1974. Uh, excuse me. There's a big um, life date. 
1968. Hello. 1968. The only child that mattered was born. Just kidding. Not really. But I was born. I was born. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead. 1974. And then a few years. (laughs) Yes. And then a few years later. So then this is when um, you and dad decide to go to Japan, which is kind of a life-changing event. Yeah, by then we had uh, one other child, a boy. Yeah, doesn't matter. And Just when kidding. we went to Japan, Lisa <laughs> was five years old, and Chris yes. was ten months old. Yeah. Why did you and Dad decide to go to Japan? I'm very curious. He wanted to travel, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. But we... Uh, went to Japan as educational missionaries and he taught mostly at uh, the university of a university. And I taught at the high school. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest culture shock? So one of the things that I talk about on this uh, podcast is culture shock moments, you know, like going there for me, like you said, I was five years old, so I didn't have as much of a culture shock. But coming here, I had definitely had. But I'm, I'm assuming that you and Dad must have had so many culture shock moments going to Japan. What do you think was like the biggest thing for you? Well, one of the first problems we ran into was um, we arrived in Sendai, which is where we were to be stationed during mm-hmm. the first three years we were there. And one of the missionaries met us at the airport and welcomed us there, but then told us that she was going on a vacation and she didn't have time to be bothered with with us. So she didn't help you guys at all? <laughs> no, she didn't. Um, oh, man. We didn't have any Japanese money and we didn't speak Japanese. We had had no language study at all. And uh, in order to have money to buy groceries and so forth, we had to open a bank account. What's a bank? I don't know. What's the word for bank? I know in English, but not in Japanese. (laughs) And so that was a big problem. It ended up being my husband's problem. He wandered all over Sendai (laughs) trying to figure out what a bank was before he found one. And it's also not easy opening a bank account. In Japan, even to these to this right. day, it's really, really hard. But I could imagine back then it was really difficult. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And another uh, thing we came across was that, uh, well, we, we were to stay in an apartment. And behind the apartment, there was a small house where a, a woman lived. And she was to be our maid. We were to pay her for the work that she did. She was to cook and mm-hmm. clean house. Mm-hmm. That was something we had never heard about before. And you guys didn't as, know it was going to happen? Right. But it's quite common with missionaries. All the missionaries that lived near us yeah. had a maid that went with the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you have no choice in the matter. But I do rem- I do have really fond memories of Fujiko-san. Her name is Fujiko-san. Yes. And she did cook quite a bit for us. She introduced us to still my 
favorite memory is actually, and you know, this would be taboo now, but whale meat. I loved whale meat when I was growing mm-hmm. up. She made she made it a lot. Yes, and she introduced us to Japanese food. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't have learned as much, I don't think, about Japanese food. Mm-hmm. When we went to a restaurant, we would just get one of the workers, bring them outside, point to something in the window. The plastic food. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Comes in and handy. Tell them we want this. Mm-hmm. But uh, Fujiko-san also co- uh, shopped for the food. So she would buy uh, things that she thought we would like and would prepare them. Mm. And so we learned to uh, learn to like a lot of the Japanese yeah. food that way. What's your but remember that uh, I mentioned that we had two kids when we went. Lisa mm-hmm. was five. Chris was ten months. Yeah, and so that was a new experience for him. He ate. He was still eating some with his hands, and Fujiko-san made us this real nice. Uh, Chirashi Jushi. Oh, Chirashi Zushi. And it's very colorful and used for a lot of special occasions. Yeah, it's rice with, on top of it, is usually like hamburger, ground meat. There's also usually, it's very colorful, egg, like shredded egg, ginger. Oh, and the pink, like little fish and stuff. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very common, uh, yeah, yeah, quite healthy, but good. Yeah. So, so Fujiko-san made that for us? Yes, but Chris didn't know what to do. He was Uh-oh. picking it up in his hands and throwing it in the floor. <laughs> and But after spending so much time on cooking it, you'd think Fujiko-san would be insulted, but she just laughed at him. <laughs> yeah, he knows no better. <laughs> and then Denise was born in Sendai, my, yeah. our young, the youngest, your youngest, my sister. Um, she was born there. I'm assuming that was also an interesting experience, having a child in a foreign country back then. Um, And then, um, so so then in Tokyo, huh? Garbage. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mom, go ahead. You can talk. You can, you can say, you can say, go ahead. One of the, one of the interesting things in Sendai was, um, we had to put our garbage out to the street mm-hmm. and the the maids would go out and, you know, help with the garbage. The way they knew the garbage truck was coming was that it would play music. It played Camp Town Races. You know the song? Camp Town Ladies sing this song. Um, do-da. Do-da. Uh-huh. Yeah. When, you, yeah. when you heard that music, you knew the garbage truck was coming. And then the women would go out and help clean up after them, clean up anything that had been spilled on the ground. I didn't realize. So I bet, I mean, even in Tokyo, there was a lot of that too, right? There was but, a, but Tokyo didn't have the music. Uh, I don't know. But they still have the same tradition, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, because I mean, there are some things that would have music, that um, but but I guess that might be the reason why is because mm-hmm. to like prompt everyone, yeah. you know, to let them know. Yeah. Hmm. Another interesting sound that we heard in in Sendai was the geta. People were wearing the like the wooden platform sandals. shoes. 
mm-hmm. that were yeah, made of wood. And we would hear them walking by on the street. <laughs> Which is also an interesting observation because that means there was – because you wear geta with more Japanese clothing. So this means that there were a lot more people still dressed in the traditional Japanese clothing and not in Western clothing, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what would be, um, what's your fondest memory? Because, you know, after that, we went to the States and then we came to Tokyo. And then that's really where we lived for a very long time, big chunk of time. Yes, because we only spent about three years. Three years in Sendai. Sendai. Yeah. About 26 years altogether in Japan for us. Yeah, and me a little bit longer. Yes. Um, What's your fondest memory from Tokyo? Oh, Tokyo was so different from Sendai. Of course, the traffic... Whereas we didn't have a lot of traffic in Sendai. We didn't even have a car in Sendai. But, and riding the trains, I'm sure you've heard stories about riding the trains mm-hmm. in Tokyo where somebody has to push you to get you on the train. Or Yeah, especially in Shinjuku Station and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, and the trains were so crowded. Even little kids riding the trains would be squashed. Mm-hmm. And did you enjoy? Because um, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm assuming it's a really different experience for you, though, living in Tokyo compared to Sendai. Because Sendai is a little bit more, you know, kind of country compared, obviously, compared to Tokyo. And we did live downtown for a while too. In certain yeah, well, areas. Yeah, we lived in a, a lot of different areas. And when you change houses, you change transportation, you have to get used to that again. Yeah, a slew of trains. Yes, it was a little difficult at first to get Mm -hmm. used to the trains and know which train to take when you went someplace. But the the language that was used, it wasn't the difficult characters that were always used, or maybe that you would see the... Kanji? The kanji, but also, uh, you know, it may have hiragana, which is a simplified. Yeah. So you could read the kanji. And also, the words that are used for train stations tend to be easier to remember. Than the the language itself? Well, like the word yama, like the yama is used in a lot of train stations. Yeah. And so... Like Takayama. Yeah. Stuff like that. So you could figure that one out. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, what do you... So 26 years in Japan, what do you miss the most about Japan? Is there something that you really miss? The food. What's your favorite Japanese food? It's not so much that I have a favorite Japanese food, but... yeah. I enjoyed going to the Japanese markets. Oh, yes. Oh, when I taught at one location, I would uh, pass this market, and the vegetables are so pretty. (laughs) I mean, you see shiitake 
Which are mushrooms. Um, mushrooms, yeah, and they were so nice. Mm. And other uh, foods, they wouldn't put out something that didn't look perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I would often get off the, the bus. I would be taking a bus to the station, but I would couldn't resist the food there at the market, so I would get off the bus there and do my shopping and then walk the rest of the way to the train station. Yeah. And the bread. I love the bread. Remember you with Anderson? That was our favorite. Well, Anderson Bakery and Kinokuniya, Kinokuniya yes. which is still now in the same location it was in the Montesando, which is like, you know, downtown part of Tokyo, like in the heart of Tokyo, New Shibuya. But um, that was only a couple, I mean, a couple blocks from our house. And I remember, right. yeah. And you would get the German bread. They had the most delicious bread. You Russian. Know, oh, Russian bread. Yes. Oh, I thought it was, was German. One of each. <laughs> well, yeah, one of each representing. Um, and then uh, besides that, you know, also, yeah, but Anderson, which was my favorite bakery, Get so many delicious pastries and stuff there. What was your biggest culture shock moment for you coming back to the States? That's things after 26 years in Japan teaching. I felt like I was a foreigner when I came back to the States. I got a job teaching uh, in the elementary school. But a lot of the terms that they had used, or especially um, short forms of words. Like abbreviations? Well, like that, or? more like, uh, not abbreviations, but, you know, where they use a letter for each thing. I, keep, um, I forgot what that's called. <laughs> yeah. And um, I didn't know what they were talking about. And so I would go to a teacher's meeting and maybe leave without having understood a lot of what they were saying <laughs> because I had, a, a, like, learning a new vocabulary mm, for teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine, and the work culture itself would probably be very different as well because yeah. you were studying, I mean, you were teaching in a Japanese school system, so it's probably yeah. extremely different from the U.S. Most of the time when I was in Japan, I was teaching English to Japanese high school students mm -hmm. because they um, they learn English writing and grammar, mm -hmm. and they learn reading. So they have those two classes. And in most schools, that's all they learn. So when they finish, they might have taken six years of English lessons but do not speak English. Even the teachers who are teaching the English a lot of times don't speak. Don't speak so it right. Yeah. So my job was to try to get them to speak English, and so it was a third class that was added. Uh, yeah. But when I came back to the states, I was teaching English to foreign kids who were going to the elementary school. So like at ESL, English is a second language kind of thing? Yes. Well, that mm -hmm. was my 
field. I went back right. in Japan. I, got, I went back to school and got my master's yes. in teaching English as a second language. So I was able to get a job in that in the States when mm-hmm. I came back. But I never really taught English to little kids like that. I'd, I uh, was assigned to this elementary school, but I was given no materials to teach with. Mm. And I don't know what they expected me to do. But where, um, where was this? Was this in Virginia or here in, in South, Virginia. In South Carolina? Virginia, mm. yeah. And so finally I just began to collect stuff, anything I thought I could use, and began to make up my own lessons for them. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had fun with with that. And eventually the vice principal at the school got me some books to use. Mm. And how is that different culturally from Japan? Do they give you a curriculum already or are they, do they allow you to have some freedom in, in creating your class curriculums? In Japan, they give you money and you go out and buy stuff that you need. Oh, but you, you have freedom to create a curriculum. Um, we got to choose the books that oh. we used. Oh. And they were written specifically for students who mm-hmm. did not speak English. And there were some very good books available for teaching mm. that. But in... But, you know, that would be the main thing that you would have. But there were a lot of other things that you needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so we were, every year we're given money to buy books that we could add to our curriculum and other materials. Mm-hmm. And the gov- even though it was a private school, government helped support mm-hmm. the school when it was That's why I've got books all over my house now. To this day, yes. (laughs) So why do you think, because I feel like Japan, I think now the required age for starting to learn English is third grade, maybe earlier. Yes, they were uh, talking about changing it when we left. Yeah. To get it down into the elementary school. So why do you think it is that still a lot of Japanese people are very hesitant to even though I feel like some of them have such a good understanding of the grammar, but they don't speak it. Like I've always said, when people have asked me, I've said, I think it's because they don't try to use it. And so if you don't try, you don't learn. What do you think? And also they're afraid of making mistakes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One thing that we found was um, sometimes a teacher of, English, one who mm-hmm. taught grammar and writing, mm-hmm. would give a speech. And when people would ask about ask a question about what was said, the teacher couldn't answer it, even though they could put a, a speech together. They didn't know what they said, what they their own in their mm-hmm. own speech. Oh man, they just didn't feel comfortable in, oh. in putting together an answer. So summarizing, basically, could be. Oh. Huh. I wonder if that's because 
So they put something together, which is very structured, takes a long time, right? right probably foreigner corrected for them. <laughs> yes, which is which is what they do. Yeah, yes. you're right. And then, but then if someone says, "Okay, can you tell me in a couple sentences what you talked about?" They wouldn't be able to like summarize it, maybe, or, or maybe the question needed an answer that was not completely given in the text of the speech. Oh, okay. So maybe they were having to kind of Mm. change the wording a bit or something and and give their own answer to a question. I feel like that's still kind of a problem. Even when I go to Japan these days, a lot of people still know or have, you know, kind of, Okay, at least, you know, they have a handle, uh, sometimes better than, you know, us native English. But yes, but it's still like they're very they get very uncomfortable sometimes with like listening Mm -hmm. one and then even just like figuring out, Okay, this is what they said and then say something back and they just like panic. Right. But it's interesting. Interesting. I thought my job in Japan was to teach English to the students. Yeah. But I was told a number of times that that's not the only reason why you're here. You're here to help the teachers with their English. (laughs) Double duty. Yes. (laughs) And you are asked to answer questions, maybe Mm -hmm. about something they don't understand about the grammar, Mm -hmm. or you might be asked to correct a paper that they had written to make sure it was in good English. Mm. Then they're not embarrassed. Mm. So you're kind of a cleanup crew in a way, a little <laughs> bit too. Yes. Yeah. So if um, if you were to tell someone, like, you know, I, I talk a lot about language on this podcast, you know, about me using language as an interpreter studying language in Japan as a little girl. Um, what what do you think is the the most important thing like for someone to learn a language? You mean it could be anything. Like I think I think it's not being afraid. I think it's oh, just you know what I mean? Like I think that's more for the, the speaking. Yeah. Of the language. Yeah. You have to feel comfortable with it. Yeah. Of course, if you're just learning grammar and reading, that's different. Mm-hmm. Of course, reading, you sometimes run into cultural problems. Mm. But it's much easier, I know, for the Japanese to read something than it is to talk about it. Uh-huh. So, okay. Maybe I should mention that uh, when Japanese go outside Japan and stay for a while, they have a problem with their kanji when they come back to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Because they haven't kept up with it. Because, I mean, kanji. Right. It's complicated. Uh, yeah. And they need to relearn it. And now even more of a problem because, I mean, even me, and I'm not very good with writing 
Chinese characters, kanji. Mm -hmm. However, with a laptop, because a lot of it is automated, and so you can pick a kanji, you know, and be like, oh, this is what I need to put in. So I'm able to write emails and respond to people with kanji, but no one does writing physically anymore. I mean, they do still in the schools, but yeah. So I feel like a lot of people, even people who now are living, you know, in Japan are having a hard time with the kanji. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, mom, for joining me on my podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. I enjoyed it. We'll have to have chapter two. She says, no, thank you. <laughs> anyway, so that is all with my little, with a chat with my mom. Um, yes, mom, you and dad are the reason that so much of my life happened. Well, my whole life happened really, because I wouldn't be here without you two. But um, this whole thing about Japan, the relationship with Japan and living in Japan, everything, it means kind of came. And being a blonde geisha. And being the blonde geisha, yes. Um, which, you know, uh, I did not like. I will revert to the Sendai thing. When we were in Sendai, I will just say this real quick. I hated riding the streetcar to school and then having people pull out my hair. And that happened all the time. They didn't pull it out. They just touched it. No, they sometimes pulled it out. It was like, eh. Ooh, what was that? Yeah. Yes, they did used to do that. So, you know, blonde, being a blonde geisha does sometimes have its cons, I will say. Um, and then you were a natural blonde. Uh, yes, and continue to be every single day of my life. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you guys once more for joining me for another episode of my podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I will be back with you again here on Adventures of a Blonde Geisha. I am your host, Liesl. Take care, live for lots of love, lots of peace. Be respectful and kind to one another and see you soon. Bye. Thank you.